Claudia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi. Great to have you on. Uh, so this podcast, Hungry Minds, the spirit of it is uh, really celebrating the power of curiosity and questions and dwelling in possibility. And you're an artist uh, and the creative director of Project Wayfinder, which we'll uh, delve into in a moment. And your art, from what I've seen, really does capture um, one sense of curiosity by looking at it really piques one's interest and questions are generated. And I think it really gives a whole new sense of what art can be, which we'll get into in a, in a moment. But I'm really curious about your academic background, because from what I've read, you're a self-taught artist, and I believe you have a bachelor's in philosophy and psychology and a master's in uh, social anthropology. And the question I have is, how, how has your academic background and interest shaped your art? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that for me, my art is very much the vessel for these other academic ideas. And one of the things that I found when I was studying in university is a lot of the time these ideas weren't really coming to life in an, in an experiential way. You'd be confronted with these very academic um, ideas in, in textbooks and uh, in these sort of very isolated ways, and I wanted to find, I wanted to find different mediums and different ways to be able to share these ideas that, for me, really fundamentally like shifted the way that I both experienced the world and really created my own world. And so, for me, all of my different art projects are ways of sharing those ideas from within those different fields, and I've been extremely inspired inspired by all of them um, from really my focus in philosophy was the philosophy of mind and, and consciousness. And then with anthropology, I specialize a lot in, in mental health and what does it look like to uh, undergo personal and communal transformation. Um, and then in psychology, I was really interested in positive psychology that at the time was really emerging right as I was doing my undergraduate degree and really looking at what makes a fulfilling life and what does it mean to flourish and not just look at the pathology of mind which is often how psychology has always been framed in the past right yeah i think so positive psychology is something that as you defined it makes a certain amount of sense if people don't have that particular background and looking at uh, health and wellness from a social social anthropological standpoint. But for people that may have not really heard of the philosophy of mind or, or consciousness uh, in how it's studied philosophically, could you perhaps give us what are some of those big animating ideas of, of those fields? Sure. So when, well, with the, through the frame that I was looking at those at at university, and I was at the University of Oxford that has a very specific sort of metaphysical view of what the mind is. Um, but philosophy of mind, the way I learned it was primarily concerned with what is the nature of the mind? What is the nature of consciousness? How does it relate to the body? Is there a dichotomy of mind and body, which is, is how we talk about those concepts and within our culture and within our language? Um, and how does the brain relate to to the mind and then really comparing those ideas that you find in western philosophy which have been heavily influenced by the scientific community in in the west and then comparing those to ideas in uh, other 
I, uh, other fields such as Buddhism have been really inspired by how Buddhism talks to the minds and what does it mean to try and understand the mind phenomenology, phenomenologically through like meditation and mindfulness practice. Um, and so those have been two of the ways that I've really studied philosophy of mind and, and the nature of of what this absurd and crazy experience is that we find ourselves <laughs> a part of. And it seems to be right. this, this question that I'm, I, it always amazes me every day, just existing in the world, going to buy your groceries, getting on the bus. And, and I kind of sometimes just want to stand up and, and shout like, what are we all doing here? Why, you know, it's, it's so normalized that we are sort of here and we're alive. And the, the very fact of it's right. like utter absurdity is just like never never even mentioned you know it's like we've all we've all um, we're all complicit in just like normalizing the most just spectacular and divine thing i could imagine absolutely yeah the you know the mystery of of existence of being it's something that it is surprising and shocking how and even absurd how we don't seem to be all that mystified by it in the in the workaday world exactly uh, yeah. <laughs> um and so yeah obviously some of those things can sound a bit academic even though it's kind of the most central and intimate experience that we can really have um on one hand and so given that you were saying that often there is an experiential side uh to both philosophy and psychology and anthropology as it's studied in universities and hence that's the connection with your art Perhaps we can transition into a couple of the art projects that I'm aware of, um, uh, which I think explore some of these themes in a very profound way. Uh, I know you've uh, done this project called Thoughts in Passing, and then I think another one that kind of perhaps came out of or at least related with transient. So uh, which would you like to start with to describe? Obviously, listeners will direct them to the the respective websites so so that they can really see the visuals because of course that's what art's designed to do uh but how would you describe these projects yeah sure so i'll start with um one the first one which was chronologically first which is a meditation on the transience of all things and this is a project that was done at an artist residency up in guilala so up in northern california near mendocino and i interviewed all of the people that worked and lived on this on this patch of land, about 200 acres. So that was people who worked doing farming, um, looking after the land, but people who also owned the property. And I interviewed them about their connection to the land. And then I drew their portraits on, on these tree stumps. And there were many tree stumps throughout the property because a lot of the old redwoods were cut down um, sort of when people first were coming through that area. and. I did this as a way to connect people with transience and with the ephemeral. And so all of these portraits that were made on the trees were done with pastels. And so the idea is that they would fade away. And it was to call into question people's relationship to transience and to invite them into a relationship with transience that could be in some small way, maybe transformative, maybe a, a sort of hopefully aesthetically interesting um, 
way to like see a construct that is actually extremely troubling. I think it's one of the the sort of deepest struggles that we have with being alive is the fact that we will one day not be alive and that everything disappears. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they all of these portraits were laid out on a mile long loop through the forest. And so the idea is you would walk that loop on your own. And then at some point you would encounter a piece of a piece of art or this portrait just left on one of the trees. Um, and, and over time, they, they disappeared and were sort of taken back into the forest. And then the second project that you reference is called Thoughts in Passing, and that actually built upon this other project. And this time was a much, much bigger project. I decided to go more deeply into this idea of transience and death and dying as a, as a means to more deeply understand how to live and how to live a meaningful life. And so I interviewed hospice patients from all over the Bay Area, and I did this over a period of two years. And um, I would go and meet with patients uh, multiple times, and I would record interviews with them, and I would ask them questions about their life and what had given their life meaning and what regrets they had, what advice they would give their younger self, and, and really trying to understand what what us, the living, could learn from people who were dying. And I felt that this was a conversation that just wasn't being had. And so that project culminated in a series of nine portraits with accompanying audio interviews from those people. Um, And that project has uh, spent a couple of years, one of the pieces toured with the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery for a couple of years. And then it's, it's, um, been shown in in hospitals and universities and high schools and senior living centers and many different venues all over the country, uh, really wanting to connect that project to communities and to young people to really bring that conversation um, into into the public space. Yeah, you've done so. It's really beautiful. I mean, I've just seen this online, both of these projects, and I can imagine as artwork is designed to be seen in person, if, if possible, that it's even more of a visceral impact. And so the question I have first is with this transience one out of Gualala, um, I mean, it is pretty remarkable, um, one, just seeing these portraits on these tree stumps, but then you, of course, show uh, the transience of them, how they naturally decay. And it's amazing the emotional impact um, of seeing it seeing these portraits of people that I don't even know, I can imagine what it must've been like for the people whose portraits uh, were there. Um, My, I guess the question I have is uh, philosophically, I know we've touched briefly on this, some of the influences, but you were mentioning that there was this Japanese uh, Zen aesthetic of Mano no Aware and Wabi Sabi. And so I believe those had some sort of influence philosophically. Yes, they did. Is that, is that yeah, true? Yeah, so as I was... As I... Yeah, how would you describe, I guess, because that's what's interesting about Zen is there are these really rich philosophical ideas, but it is much more grounded in experiential living than perhaps uh, the Western tradition. So for those unfamiliar with with those, how would you describe uh, Mano no Aware and Wabi Sabi? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I, I got really interested in these aesthetic principles um, when I was creating this project and, and seeing just how different they are from both modern day Japanese aesthetic um, principles, but also very, very much so from American 
um, aesthetic. And so the um, the first one that you mentioned, wabi sabi, uh, wabi sabi is um, the idea that something becomes more beautiful when it is um, has some kind of defect to it. Ultimately, like that is the thing that makes it beautiful. So to give you an example, if you were to buy um, a new um, piece of clothing or an, a new vase for, for your kitchen, the object when it's brand new and it's immaculate is less beautiful than when that same vase has a chip out of the corner or when that clothing maybe has a little like stuff on the edge. And it is the the signs that something has been loved and used and interacted with that makes it beautiful. And then the second concept, mono no aware, is the awareness of impermanence and the awareness of transience and the, the subtle and gentle kind of nostalgia and sadness um, and, and the sort of aliveness that comes with that confrontation of transience. And obviously that was both of these concepts were, were really core to the project. But obviously that second one was was very central. And um, so an example of Mono no Wari, which is really um, huge in Japanese culture, is the celebration of the cherry blossom trees and how everybody will come out to see the cherry blossoms. And they're not just beautiful because they are stunning these these pink flowers but they are particularly beautiful because they will last for such a brief amount of time and so the that that the depth of the beauty is heightened because everybody knows it's a very temporary um, experience absolutely yeah and your art really does capture i think that general sort of aesthetic very well and of course, as you alluded to, um, our own Western tradition, especially of recent vintage, have has almost very antithetical values. And it almost seems celebrating impermanence or imperfection almost seems a bit morbid or deranged. Um, however, I think that once people get accustomed to these, I think they see the value. And, and while the art is almost... Uh, clear why there's a certain beauty to that why would you say this is something in many respects it is the human condition everything's impermanent and transient but but why is it something that it should not just be the domain of philosophers or artists why why is it something that all of us uh, should perhaps embrace uh, more creatively within our lives how can it help us uh, perhaps improve our own art of living by by being able to recognize and understand these these various yeah, facets. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for me, for me, transience is one of the most important things to be able to embrace in order to live deeply. And I think that ultimately, what we're talking about here is a our own transience, right, and a fear of death and mortality. But but that's just that's like the big death, right? But every single moment of every right. single day there is transience and it is the, the the one kind of constant that is infused into everything whether that's the relationships you have or the process of eating lunch right everything is change and I think in our culture that that idea that like everything is change and everything is shifting and nothing is permanent is not one that we have designed and help and, and cultivated a healthy relationship with and I think if as human beings if we are able to cultivate a healthy relationship to that fact of life I think we will be able to live more deeply I think we'll wake up to 
the sort of urgency of of doing what is what is meaningful, what is fulfilling to us, right? The idea, this idea of like living for the day. I mean, what I saw with the hospice patients that I worked with was when they, when finally they were able to see, oh my God, I have two weeks, I have one month, right? Suddenly like values shifted. What what was important to them shifted. Mm. And why wait until you've been told you have a month left to live? Why then have your values shift? If you are able to, live with a healthy relationship to transients how will that change your values like right here right now how would you live differently if you you know if you're able to like look into your partner's face as you're like having some stupid argument and you're just like you know you you step you know you step back and you're like what am I doing like what am I doing like what does it mean that you know in however many years time like no one's even gonna remember my name like is it worth getting caught up in the small things of life um, that, that kind of keep us unhappy. Um, and so it's, it's so not meant to be a like depressing or like a sad um, way of relating. And I think the very fact that it is laden with such weight and sadness is because we haven't created um, a really like healthy relationship with it. And that's, and that's like a very like systemic and like cultural issue. I don't think we kind of provide one another with the tools to do that. Right. Yeah. You express it very well. And it does remind me that while we were talking about, you know, the Japanese uh, tradition um, that has, has that sort of baked into the culture uh, we have had our own Western tradition reminds me of memento mori, this Latin phrase, remember that you will die. And I know that there was artwork associated yeah. with that of like an hourglass and rotting fruit and candles burning, all the things that were symbolic or literal of that sort of impermanence. So we've definitely had that as part of our tradition, which is not that long ago. And I think the, the rem- those are, again, meant to serve as those same sort of reminders of these slogans remember that you're going to die. We don't have forever. So how, in fact, do you want to live? Um, it was exact opposite of mm. being macabre and, you know, obsessing about darkness and, and death, but more of those reminders. And which is a nice segue to this other project with hospice, uh, of the hospice work that you were, um, or the hospice patients you were working with, thoughts in passing. And so while this memento mori uh, might have still life, a reminder, reminding us of the transients, perhaps the most powerful uh, reminder is being with people that are literally at the end of their life. And given that you had these portraits in these interviews, what, what was something that you learned from these people? Um, as they were at the end of their life, how are they reflecting on the way they live their life or do they have recommendations um, on, on how to live or regrets they may have had as they were contemplating uh, their, their own death? Yes. I mean, I learned many, many different things from many different people, but if I were to sum up what all of those learnings had in common, I think one of the most important things that I learned is that at the core of at the core of all meaning making is an act of creation and maybe that's a truism because the very idea of meaning making right has that that phrase in it of making Um, but all of the ways in which people described what was meaningful to them 
were various acts of creation or participation or connecting or, or basically ways of like transcending the individual self to be a participant in the conversation of life. And that could be through many, many different ways. And, and it was really so different for everybody, whether that was through their family, their children, their community, their work, um, their art forms, um, interactions that they had with with people that had been really meaningful or the personal growth that they had had through their lifetime. But what all of that had in common was this very active sense of participating um, and, and being part of something bigger than yourself. That was really where the meaningfulness um, was just true amongst everybody. And that got me thinking a lot about how our culture here and and you know I'm from the UK but I've, I'm a citizen of the US and the UK is not that different in terms of how we how we think of um, consumption and capitalism and, and things like that but you know really the core philosophy of the culture here is consume 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 and really your status and your worth within society is your ability to be able to consume as much as you possibly can and to accumulate um, and acquire as much as you can. And what's so interesting is when I talk to all of these people, not only did those things just not matter to anybody, uh, it really is the opposite of creation. I mean, consumption, like the etymology of consumption is the complete, is, is antithetical to creation. It's about using up, it's about destroying. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that we found ourselves in a time where I think people are really craving meaning and they're craving purpose in their life. Um, and I think it's because it is so antithetical to the core values of the culture that we've set up. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, it just rings true. And I imagine, you know, having these conversations with people that are nearing the end, it must have really uh, resonated on even a much deeper level. Uh, at the heart of this sense of uh, creation, which seemed to be so meaningful and important, is this idea of meaning and purpose. And this is probably a very appropriate time to transition to how we first met and which is you're the creative director of project wayfinder and it's this remarkable curriculum designed for high school although i know it's middle schools and even adults and college students are, are beginning to use it uh i've integrated into uh, some of my philosophy classes i have a project wayfinder elective which uh we've just gone on the maiden voyage of a few weeks ago and it's quite exciting uh, so, so what is Project Wayfinder? How would you how would you describe uh, this? Yeah, endeavor? so Project Wayfinder creates and designs educational experiences to give people the tools to be able to build purpose and meaning into their lives. And so, we really saw a huge gap in in mainstream education um, where we felt that these were not the kinds of questions that were being asked in our education system. And we certainly weren't providing young people with the tools that would really help them make decisions around that would, that would help them cultivate a meaningful and a purposeful life. And I think that, you know, if you ask anybody, what do you want in life? I think the vast majority of people would say, I want to be fulfilled and I want to feel happy. Um, and yet 
I don't think that that's what we are helping people to to do and teaching them what to do. And so that's where Project Wayfinder comes in. So we've designed for high schools, have designed a year-long curriculum that takes students through this process of really deepening self-awareness and awareness of the world around them and then culminating in a project um, that is a purposeful project. So the way we think about purpose is that purpose is one way of living a meaningful life amongst uh, also having a sense of belonging, um, having self-transcendent experiences and a connection to something bigger than yourself, uh, making things and also having a meaningful narrative, personal narrative around your life. And purpose is one pillar of that. And that's where we, that's where Project Wayfinder is really focused. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I'm I'm curious, again, if you could just distinguish between uh, meaning and purpose and happiness. I think often in this, in our culture, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's become this umbrella term, but I think psychologically, they're all quite distinct. And so I think you were teasing apart how purpose is one of these elements of meaning, but how would you describe happiness? Like, is happiness synonymous or is yeah, it a bit Yeah, that's a great question. Different? I think the pursuit of happiness is perhaps erroneous um, for how, how you can actually lead a, a, a fulfilled life. I don't think that meaning and purpose will necessarily bring you happiness. Um, I would describe happiness as more of a like fleeting positive emotion. And I think any time that you set up um, your endeavor to be seeking a sort of fleeting emotion and at at the expense of other emotions, um, I think that can be problematic. And I think I think you see that also culturally. I think we have this sort of pursuit of happiness, but then wanting to avoid other kinds of suffering or discomfort and actually meaning and purpose are are much more about embracing the full kind of facets of being human and all of the emotions and all of the experience and finding and creating meaningfulness amongst all of them. Um, So uh, that's a sort of very, maybe that's an esoteric way of explaining happiness, but I think we don't want to get too caught up in, in seeking happiness. I think happiness comes through other things. It doesn't want to be the thing that you're seeking necessarily right. directly because um, I think we'll take the wrong path to get there. Right. But, um, but to describe the other two, the way we think about meaning making, and a lot of this is, is based off the work of Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, and also a book by a woman called Emily Asfahani, who wrote a book called The Power of Meaning. And then also my experiences working on um, my project with hospice patients, we think of meaning as being multifaceted so I think two of the core ways are like the way you encounter the world so it could be the things that you encounter um through like different experiences so um like experiencing like through the natural world or like dancing or meditation or um truth and learning and studying and like that's sort of all under the bucket of of self-transcendence and these transcendental sort of experiences of connecting uh with something bigger than yourself and then similarly we have belonging and that's really about love and like feeling connected to other people and that's really encountering another person and being seen and witnessed by somebody or multiple people that you feel understood by 
Um, and that sense of intimacy and being able to be vulnerable with others, that real deep sense of belonging. And then we have on the and then we have this idea of personal narrative. And Viktor Frankl talks about this a lot in his in his experience during the Holocaust, about how do you create meaning out of suffering? How are you able to move forward having created a mm. meaningful narrative out of horrific suffering? Or on a more daily basis, out of small suffering. Um, and, and what that means is being able to find some kind of reason or some deeper why as to, you know, some growth point that you can respond to that suffering with. But then also like having a, a coherence over your life. I mean, one one of the one of the studies that was done recently about people who report having a meaningful life, there's two types of narrative that they have. One is finding pos- something positive out of suffering. And then the second thing is 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 thinking that seeing like a coherence through their narrative story of their life, so sort of having a coherent story over their life. Um, and then the last two, we have making, just the very act of making is meaningful. If you ask people what's meaningful in their life, they'll often say, you know, my hobby is gardening, cooking dinners, and that making piece is really important, not necessarily for something big and grand, but just the very act of creation is, is meaningful to us. And then the fifth piece we have of, of meaning making is purpose. And what we mean by purpose is your deepest why. Like, why am I doing this? And that means having a why that feels really connected and aligned with your values and your strengths and is of benefit to the world outside of yourself. So that could be a why, like, my why is to, you know, support my family and like get up in the morning and like look after my kids. Or that why could be, you know, I want right. to like have this huge impact in the world in like global healthcare, right? It doesn't matter. But the key thing is that having that sense of like, why am I getting up in the morning? What is my purpose? Definitely. <clears throat> you know, one of the things that really sort of was a shot from the, the blue, a bolt from the blue around the difference between, say, meaning and happiness. And this was Emily Esfahani in some of her Atlantic articles that predated her book, The Power of Meaning, was happiness is about making yourself feel good, and there's nothing wrong with that, whereas meaning, as you're alluding to, is about being a part of something or contributing to something greater than yourself. And what apparently the research was showing is those people that have lots of happiness in their life but very little meaning have the same gene expression Mm. of people under chronic adversity. So in other words, you could be have lots of happiness with little meaning, and it's bad for your physical and mental health. And uh, and I think there's even research that's come out of UCSF, kind of uh, uh, you know elaborating upon this, like telomeres, the the caps at the end of our chromosomes, the length is a proxy for health. There's a range of factors from genetics and environment, but also I think the stress response, which uh, in some respects can be robust if there's that sense of meaning and purpose. And that really was pretty powerful because we live in this scientific age where we want evidence for assertions. And uh, and so for me, that was quite powerful. And then even in another way, as you mentioned, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, I believe the heart of his logotherapy was this Frederick Nietzsche line that if one has a why to live, you can bear with almost any how. And of course, this is coming straight out of the Holocaust. And he 
is able to report on is the people that had this why to keep living and persevering in the most horrific circumstances were, you know, were able to survive psychologically. And I think that's so powerful, just uh, meditating on, our, as you mentioned, you know, as a society, we're not really focused on that on the whole. And of course, it doesn't mean that certain people don't have it in powerful ways, uh, but it's amazing. I've seen even with students with this Project Wayfinder curriculum, and we're just at the very beginning, um, just how they light up, how they can come in sleep deprived and be dealing with whatever they might be dealing with. And so energy is low. Attention is <laughs> barely there. And by being able to start focusing on things that matter, um, being introspective, asking the right kinds of questions, looking at values, it's amazing how it immediately starts to have this animating force. Uh, and the very thing that may have been full of adversity and challenge that would naturally put them in a, in a challenging mood uh, can, you know, can turn. Uh, remarkably. And this is, again, just the very beginning of this uh, meaning-making, purpose-driven journey. So it is so powerful, uh, of course, reading and hearing about it. But then what I think is so brilliant about the curriculum, you've all designed it. It's not just a matter of uh, learning more ideas. It's a matter of implementing and integrating and, and really living it. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting, not just for the students, but I think as those faculty and administrators have come to the program have testified, uh, it's, it's as powerful for adults as, as well. Even for adults like myself, I think I have a pretty good sense of, of meaning and purpose, which <laughs> has been sort of hard won and <laughs> uh, figured it out the hard way, so to speak. But it's like, naturally, it's a life, life process. And and it really was uh, tremendously meaningful to be a part of it and around of, around like-minded people. And when I showed uh, the curriculum to the faculty administration, <laughs> immediately everyone's like, I want to do this. So, so it's not just, you know, young people, so to speak, that I think need it. I think we live in a culture that is very deprived of, of this. Uh, and so uh, what's great is it seems like there, there can be a renaissance in, in meaning and purpose uh, in our lives. And it's, uh, it's great to, to see organizations like Project Wayfinder helping to shine a light. And I love that, you know, on, I think you hit the on, on, on something so important and talking about doing this with your students is that one of the things that we think is so central to this whole movement and this whole process is people having access to mentors, to be able to take them sort of along this journey. And I think that's like the incredible role that teachers can get to play for young people. And I'll always remember who those people were in my school and, and how they asked me the big questions. And they weren't necessarily answerable questions, right? But even just asking them, put those things on the roadmap of my life. And it's just such a, it's just such an incredible time potentially for young people and to be able to have access to people like you and asking those questions to them is is something that will have benefits and impact far beyond what what you can imagine is is very cool <laughs> yeah you know one hopes and i can just say from my own personal sense just how meaningful it is to be able to work with these young adults as they're really exploring um, what is meaningful and purposeful to them. So I think what's fascinating uh, 
is is just that that as people are beginning to explore and express uh, those those facets of themselves and in the world around them that are most meaning meaningful and purposeful, I think it's inspiring to to people around them. Um, you know, there's something about that when people feel connected to their why uh, that somehow some way ripples out and has a really positive effect um, on the surrounding community and perhaps can even create a sense of that uh, sense of connection and, and community. At least that's my uh, anecdotal experience to date. So, uh, so I think, yeah, finding your why can actually wind up having a really positive impact. I think that's so true. On, and I, and I think it's people. also really important to remember that this idea of, of finding your why, like there is a process, like there is a process to be able to do this. And I think yeah. that, you know, when, when I was saying earlier about like this idea that the Holy grail of being human, right. Is being fulfilled and feeling like you have meaning and purpose. These are things people always say they want. And yet it, it they feel so impossible. To, they can feel so impossible to achieve because it doesn't feel like you anybody, you know, that you know the path to get there. And I think that's one of the things we're really trying to do is certainly not to say this is the path you need to take, but here are some tools that you can craft a path that will hopefully get, you can craft your path that will help hopefully get you there. Um, and really distilling down these, these concepts, which can feel so opaque and very nebulous, um, and, and breaking them apart into smaller pieces and using a lot of metaphors along the way to help that process um, so that we can, you know, all as individuals start building and taking that journey together. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, g- given you were just saying the power of metaphor, when many of these ideas can seem abstract and, <clears throat> and nebulous, the, the power of metaphor becomes uh, quite tangible because it can anchor something that's abstract and really make it much more relevant. And the dominant metaphor that you all use at Project Wayfinder is wayfinding. Uh, so I know there's many things that we could continue to talk about, but uh, as our time I know is running out, uh, could you talk a little bit about wayfinding and how that is used yeah, as a metaphor absolutely. with so Project Wayfinding? So wayfinding is really an ancient art of finding a way. And so long before we had compasses and GPS and all these other other ways that we now rely on to find our way, right? We, everyone has a phone in their pocket. You can get anywhere, right? Long before that, the way that people would move around the world and, and find new places is really being able to read their environment and read the environment in an extremely complex way, um, which many people have lost the art of. Um, So that would be reading things like um, the local like flora and fauna, being able to read the stars, being able to understand the sun and where it was setting and when it was setting, being able to read animal tracks in the, in, um, in, on the ground, being able to understand the currents of the ocean, right? All of these things, which, to most people today are, are very invisible. Um, and so the reason we, we draw upon that metaphor is, be, is because this is how we want people to start thinking about meaning and purpose, that it's really about learning the tools to be able to read the environment and to read yourself and then piece that information together to be able to um, start forging a path in front of you towards something. Um, and the other the other important aspect is that the, we don't think that that road or that path that you create is going to be a linear path. 
right? It isn't do step A, B, C, D, E, and then you will be there. Wayfinding requires you to be constantly alert of your body, to be constantly alert of the environment, to be shifting the direction of that path when and if you need to, but always having the vision um, and the values at the core of, of the direction that you're trying to go in. Yeah, I think it's really a profound metaphor and a pretty powerful antidote to the the very linear prescribed path that so many students find themselves on, at least in the academic environment, which can be a shock when life is full of disruption and randomness and uncertainty. Uh, They don't know how to navigate that with a sense of resilience and and grit. And I think the real power of, of wayfinding in that metaphorical sense, and of course, in some contexts, learning about it is it really does unite um, you know, ancient wisdom to the postmodern world, which I think we need to be able to uh, heal this rift and disassociation that that at least modern civilization has created with the biosphere and the various other life forms on this planet. So it does seem a wonderful way to not only reconnect with our own selves, but therefore also the, the world, uh, the animate world around us. Uh, and I can really sense that uh, it's not just me saying it, but I think the students are really getting a sense of, of why these, these metaphors not only ground them and anchor them in something more tangible, but also really expose them to the yes, world yes, uh, I couldn't sort agree of beyond more. And the I think, screens. You know, one, at the core of wayfinding is this, this interconnectedness of the natural world and people that I was just that I was just talking about. But I think what comes from that is that constant reminder that you know we are not separate from the environment in which we find ourselves in and I think the more we move towards you know an urban environment and a technologically driven environment we like lose that that sense of connectedness and you know there are deep deep fundamental problems with forgetting that connection and we're seeing a lot of those play out unfortunately and so you know I think a Mm -hmm. more subtle and sort of background um, part of of why we've chosen this metaphor is that, you know, those are part of our core values as an organization of having deep respect for the earth um, and having a sense of wonder and a spirit of curiosity um, and really respecting the the generations that have come before us and the the traditions and the the practices that have come before us that you know we really think we can learn a lot from as we move forward right yeah we are uh, a distillation of this cosmic journey you know we are a distillation of the stars the elements they created the oceans the the rocks the the early life forms. And so, yeah, we're definitely not separate from it, which just shows how far we've really gone awry to, mm-hmm. to not even recognize that we're integrally connected. And I think that your curriculum is really one of the many um, kind of great movements around that are helping us kind of remap ourselves back into the, into the landscape. So it's definitely powerful, important work that needs to be done. And I'm very grateful that I was able to become aware and then be a part of this. And so I thank you and, and the rest of Project Wayfinder for, uh, oh, well, for thank you providing for this opportunity for me and my students. Yeah. And so um, if people are interested uh, in more about Project Wayfinder, what what's the best place for people uh, to go? And and I'll put this within the context of the podcast yeah, when it gets published. So our, our website but, is, but is the best simply projectwayfinder.com. 
and you can find everything on there. And we, um, we're also just expanding out to work with organizations and bring purpose workshops into organizations. And that website is projectwayfinder.co. So either of those. Okay. Great. And then what about um, if people are interested in actually seeing uh, the artwork that you talked about, Thoughts in Passing and the Transients uh, Project, so where the can they project go website to, for to see in that passing art? is thoughtsinpassing.com. And then my all of my other projects and my main art website is uh, my full name, Claudia Beechin at uh, .com. Okay, excellent. Um, any no, any final words? Re- actually, just feeling really Thoughts? energized and, and and smiley. It's really nice to have, particularly on a Monday. What a great conversation to end my Monday with. Um, just a connection <laughs> about these these like big and fascinating parts of life. Um, I really love my work. <laughs> excellent. Well, I echo your sentiments. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm definitely walking away from this conversation with a, a very big grin right, on I'll my face. So, so thank you very much, Claudia.